Uh, Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 13 through 33. Uh, We will be looking specifically at 24 through 29. Excuse me, Romans 9, 19 through 33. This is God's word. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. By way of reminder, again, bringing us into the context of what we'll be looking at this morning. This is a continuous stream of thought for Paul. Uh, This isn't just a new section he's necessarily entering into. And so we saw in Romans 8 that we have life in the Spirit, that there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus, and that we also are heirs with Christ. We are adopted as sons receiving the firstborn privileges that Christ himself earned in his perfection here on earth. And so also Paul lays out for us the future glory that we have to behold. 
and God's everlasting love that neither death nor life nor angels nor powers nor principalities will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul lays forth now for us how we are predestined unto life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf. And so first, this morning, we're going to look at the calling concerning the Gentiles in verses 24 through 26. Let me read it again. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those Her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. It's quite obvious uh, to us that this is reflecting back upon what Paul had said in verse 23, that he has made known uh, riches of his glory for the vessels that were prepared beforehand. And so God himself is the one who is active in preparing us beforehand. And so also God is the one who called us with a purpose to be conformed to the image of his son, as he says in Ephesians 2.10. And now this is the same God whom we've learned so far in this passage, the very God whose word has not failed, Verse 6, the God who is just, verse 14, there's no injustice found with God. The one who mercies and compassions us, if we can use those as a verb, verse 15. The one who has right over the clay, verse 21. The one who makes honorable and dishonorable vessels, verse 21 again. The one who has prepared beforehand a people for glory, verse 23, and finally, the God who has called us, in verse 24. This calling is what we refer to as effectual calling, or an irresistible calling, a calling that produces an effect. The same calling that is said in Romans 8, 28 through 30, that we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed as sons, the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he has predestined, he also called. Those whom he has called, he has justified. And those whom he has justified, he himself has glorified. Effectual calling is an active calling. God is the one who does it and acts in accordance with his own word. Similarly, it's a responsive calling. We are enlivened by the Spirit of God to hear and respond to this calling. We respond to the gospel. It's exactly what Jesus himself says in John 10 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We hear the voice of our Good Shepherd. We respond. As children, or if you are a child, uh, many of you probably remember you were outside playing with your friends and you would hear other parents calling for their children and you tune them out. But when you hear the voice of your own parent call your name, you respond instantly. You know what their voice sounds like and you respond to their voice. So also do we, when given the Spirit, hear the voice of our Savior and respond to his call. This is the calling that Paul has in mind. As our shorter catechism says, effectual calling is a work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, he doth uh, persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as is freely offered in the gospel. It is a work of God's spirit, not a work of man, lest we would boast. Man is not in the equation, and thankfully, we are not in the equation. We are told quite literally in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God is the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Also, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. Jesus himself even tells us in uh, John 3.3, 3, in responding to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot, meaning you do not have the ability to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Something has to happen before you can grasp the truths of the word. And Jesus also assures us, from John 6, 44 through 45, no one can, no one has the ability to come to me unless there's your stipulation, unless the Father draws him. And then I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, you are called by the triune God, the creator of heavens and the earth. It's an effectual and irresistible calling, a calling that man cannot thwart, an irresistible calling that extends to both Jew and Gentile alike. As Paul says, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul, again, big surprise, he goes to the Old Testament to prove his point. The amount of Old Testament quotations in Romans 9 is alarming. How much he brings scripture to interpret scripture. How he demonstrates through the scriptures that these have always been the plan from ages long ago. He says, as indeed the Lord says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Once again, God is the author of the calling. He is the one who effects the calling 
So we'll look first at the person who was called in verse 25. It gives us a a bit of an insight uh, into who was called, just as Hosea himself says. Yet we have to remember that Hosea is merely the messenger of God, the, the prophet of God. So it is God himself who is speaking through Hosea to demonstrate his redemptive purposes, to show this great redemption. And we're reminded that God himself is the only person, the only being, the only God who can call things that were once not into existence. Paul has already mentioned this in Romans 4.17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, that is Abraham, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that were once not, or the things that did not exist. So what does God bring forth that did not once exist in our lives? It's faith and repentance. He brings a people out of the estate of sin and misery, enlivens their hearts, renews their wills, so that they are enabled to embrace Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. There's also two uh, declarative statements uh, that are found regarding the people whom God has called. Uh, This person who is being effectually called goes from a very uh, different stage, a state of being. This major transition happens between them. They were once in the category of not my people, Lo a me, not my people, not belonging to me, God says. They were strange. They were set apart in spiritual darkness and death. They were outside of God's covenant law and love. But what happens to those who are called? They are called my people. God's people. You were once not my people, and now you are my people, my beloved treasure. So also, this person, uh, being estranged from God, being in Adam, being an enemy of God, is now called beloved. Not only are you called to be God's people, but you are called beloved, the special object of God's own love for his people. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are his people. You are his beloved. The calling in Romans 9.25 is the same calling that we have seen previously. It's the same calling that Paul has had in mind the entire time throughout writing Romans. And when God calls, the sinner comes home. Thanks be to God For that truth, that you were set apart away from God, and he called you unto himself, and you responded with the grace that he has given to you. Paul even mentions Christians as the special object of God's calling. Romans 1, 7, he says, as he writes this letter to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called his saints, called, set apart unto God. And so also he uses this in verse 11 of Romans 9 with regard to election. He says, though they, 
Esau and Jacob were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but what? Because of him who calls. Calling is effectual, meaning it brings about its intended result. And the intended result is to make you his people, to make you his beloved. It's part of God's decree. It's brought about by God. We know in that moment, being brought to spiritual light, having a newness of our hearts in being, the calling of our Father, our God, our Good Shepherd, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the best calling we could ever have in this life. Steve Lawson quotes on this. He says, if God didn't call you, you'd never answer. Is that not the truth? If God didn't call us, we would remain in our darkness and depravity. And all is yours, not because of anything you have done, but because of Jesus Christ, our blessed hope and Savior, because of what he has accomplished perfectly, obediently, submitting himself, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross on behalf of his people, on behalf of his beloved. This calling is exactly what Jesus himself even says that would happen to the Gentiles. Again, this is nothing new for Paul. This isn't some Paul doctrine that's divorced from Scripture. Jesus himself, again, John 10, verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, Gentiles, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This wonderful hymn writers and music group, City of Light, says in one of their songs, Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So thus far we have looked at the calling concerning the Gentiles, specifically in verse 25, with the person who was called. Now verse 26, under the calling concerning the Gentiles, we'll look at where the person is called again verse 26 and in that very place where it is said to them you are not my people they will be called sons of the living god just a little context so hosea was writing uh uh, this he was prophesying this to uh the 10 tribes of northern israel just as they were about to be uprooted uh, from the land from the presence of god And they were about to go out to be displaced with the Assyrians, with the pagan nations. And being out of the land uh, was not merely just losing their home, uh, but it really represented to them a place of spiritual darkness. It's where uh, the temple was not located. It's where God's presence was absent from them. So also it was a reminder of their wilderness wanderings when they had not yet entered the land. Now they have entered the land and they're going to be displaced from the presence of God, displaced from the blessings of the covenant to be in their land. And why is this? Why are they displaced? Because of their apostasy, because of their service to idols and to pagan religions to following after the depravity of the kingship 
following David and Solomon. So also, the Gentile people, uh, the ethnon, the nations, were in a place of spiritual darkness as well. They were separated from God. You yourself were alienated from God apart from Christ Jesus. The nations of the Gentiles and pagan nations were truly not my people. They did not belong to God's people. But these people were separated from God, became his people, his beloved. And this restoration that's told to us, like some of Israel, is only promised because, again, of what Jesus Christ himself has done. The true and better Adam. The true Israel. Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. The true seed, the true Israel, the true and better Adam. Or as he writes in verses 26 through 29 of Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, according to the promise. This is because Jesus himself is the Son of God. Romans 1.4, Paul says that he was declared to be the Son of God. Romans 8.3, for God did, had done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by what sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his Son. In verse 32, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us, how will you not also graciously give us all things? And so therefore, since Jesus himself is the true Israel, he is the true Son of God, Gentiles are the sons of God by nature of their union with Christ, which brings us right back to Paul's argument in Romans 8, 14, and so on, that we are adopted as sons of God. We can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call the creator of the heavens and earth our Father, a personal endearing word for the creator of all things. Now you may think to yourself, well, this is just a new promise. This is, that was the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. The New Testament is all about the Gentile. Well, that's not necessarily true. This has been all part of God's redemptive plan since Genesis. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 9, Noah had just gotten off the boat And he had his three sons. And in here is a little taste, a little promise that the Gentiles would be included into Israel. He says in verse 26 through 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem referring to the Shemites, the Semites, Israel, the seed that would come to Israel. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. 
Remember the coastal peoples, the Gentile nations. He says, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Gentiles were always part of God's plan in redemption as well. Not only that, but the promise was given to Abraham and the patriarchs as well. Genesis 12, 13, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 22, 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Genesis 32, 12, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God always intended by faith to save those whom he predestined to save. And this promise was even told of Israel in terms of the last days. In the last days, the Gentiles will come as a people unto and into Israel. The prophet Isaiah 14.1, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Zechariah 2.11, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This can't be emphasized enough that God is the one who has the privilege and the right to call a people unto himself, whom he has decreed before the foundation of the world, has set you apart to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, his only Son. Again, for we are his workmanship, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, you were chosen for a purpose. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but what? Now you have received mercy. How wonderful is the gospel. How wonderful is the good news. You did not deserve mercy. You did not deserve compassion. I did not deserve mercy. I did not deserve compassion. Yet Jesus Christ himself bore your sins. He was crucified, nailed to a cross, hung there for an insufferable amount of time, endured the wrath of the Father, the wrath that we rightly deserved. Bore it willingly, did it humbly, And now because of what he has accomplished, you are sons. You are his people. You are his chosen race. 
You are his beloved. So now secondly, we'll look at the calling concerning the uh, excuse me, the Jews, the calling concerning the Jews in verses 27 through 29. <clears throat> Again, Paul quotes Isaiah saying, he cries out concerning Israel, though the number of your sons, uh, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. <clears throat> now, this kind of injection that Paul has is really going to be kind of the, the major theme throughout the rest of Romans 9 through 11. He, he kind of starts at it in the beginning of Romans 9. He gives us a little bit, shows how the Gentiles are included. And now he kind of goes back to that, carries it out a little bit more. He'll kind of go off on another uh, little rant, if you will, and then he'll bring that back through. So he's kind of weaving this theme of what, what do we do about the Jews then if they were God's chosen people? And so Paul first reminds us that ethnic Israel has not been forgotten. Uh, scripture tells us that there will always be a faithful remnant a faithful remnant of God's people, a faithful remnant of Israel. This again falls back into what Paul says in Romans 9, 6 through 8. He reminds us, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is exactly what he says in Galatians 3, that to your offspring is related to Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are in the seed of the promise. But still, there will be a remnant of ethnic Israel. And the original disciples of Jesus make this very clear that this is true. How many disciples were there originally? There were 12. Were all of them faithful until the end? No. They were all Jews. They were all circumcised. They all went to synagogue. But one of them was a devil. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, who hung himself, and who died. It demonstrates that there are some who are among Israel who are not truly Israel. And Peter himself explains this very truth in the book of Acts. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And during this encounter, there were some of the people there in Jerusalem who were cut to the heart. Not all of them were cut to the heart, but some of them were cut to the heart. Some of them in that moment were called. And we know that some of Israel as well remained and still hardened themselves to this very fact. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There were then thousands that were added to the number that day. There were many other who heard the, heard the message, heard the declaration, heard the outward call, but never received the inward call of the Holy Spirit. Not all Israel is Israel. And in this passage, Paul quotes from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. Again, emphasizing the very point that ethnicity and heritage does not earn you the right to be saved. Israel's very own apostasy, which led to exile, demonstrates this very point. That not all Israel is Israel. Despite the high number of Israelites who went into captivity, only a remnant will be saved. Only a remnant will worship the one and only living and true God. Again, the patriarchs were promised that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars, as the sand of the seashore. This promise is fulfilled in part by the salvation of the remnant, but also the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promise of Abraham. And salvation here is focusing on the point that it's referring to the salvation for Israel and not so much them possessing a land, possessing a place to live in. The salvation of the remnant among the people of Israel continues to advance this concept and this thought process of Paul that God can have mercy on whom he has mercy and have compassion on whomever he has compassion. This mercy against the backdrop of God's wrath against those who reject Christ brings mercy even brighter and into the forefront of this very passage. In verse 29 is yet another quote from Isaiah in 1.9. And Paul communicates here uh, that the salvation of a remnant is a miracle of God's grace and of his own mercy. The verb that he used saying he had not left us highlights the fact that God's preservation of Israel is with specific reference to offspring or to seed. He has not left his offspring to go like the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah. Paul's teaching here is that seed equals remnant. They are the seed of the promise. Go back to Romans 9, 1 through 18. And if we remove the negative where he says not, it is saying that God has indeed left for Israel an offspring, a heritage. But he did not let the people of Israel go in the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah, go in the ways of God's ultimate justice and wrath. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, there are some who were left alone and succumbed to the same depravity as Sodom and Gomorrah. And many did worship false idols when they went into exile into Assyria and Babylon. Yet God himself intervened and spared a remnant. Israel isn't totally and utterly ruined. Just like with Lot, God 
retained a people out of that wicked city and brought them from destruction. And this works well into what we'll see in Romans chapter 11 and verse 4. He says, God, in quoting, <clears throat> quoting the Lord, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God has kept and preserved and maintained his remnant. And that only a remnant is saved points to the severity and extent of the judgment that God executes. The remnant that is saved is evidence of the Lord's favor, his compassion, and his mercy to guarantee that his promises in the covenant will come to pass. God's gracious action that the seed is maintained, except that God has left us a seed, as Isaiah has predicted Again, this is all part of God's mercy. If you, if you have not gotten anything from this yet, it's that God is merciful where we should not receive mercy. God retains a remnant of people. The theme emerges that God's mercy is cherished against the wilder canvas of God's wrath upon those who disobey and hate him. And because of that, no one has any legitimate claim uh, or complaint that the preservation of a remnant justifies a complaint against God. This is why Paul says, is there any injustice then with God? If, if all of this has failed, then God's unjust, isn't he? No. It's all part of God's perfect plan. And this warning, this affirmation, this truth found in this passage extends to the visible church as well. That is, everybody who comes into the church, who makes a profession of faith. Uh, there are those who attend church weekly. They partake of the sacraments. They do good things for the church. Yet like Israel, they're unrepentant. They don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord but that the church merely functions as the works by which they are saved. We cannot for one moment think that we are equally saved from this passage since we are not like the people of Israel, because we are. We go after the idol factories we build in our own hearts, and we betray God even though we sit amidst the church. We have to remember that Church membership, church obedience does not earn us salvation or rights to the kingdom of God, but it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So I'd ask you then, are you yourself this morning under the mercy of God? As we've read, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. Are you able to say with a clear conscience that Jesus Christ died for me, a sinner? That he saved me, that I know him with all my heart, soul, and mind. I can hear the voice of my Savior call me, and I know it is his voice. Are you assured of that fact? Because if not, we deny him. And we stand under God's wrath and curse 
and judgment. And the Lord calls us to repent and believe. The Lord calls us by name, his own sheep, his own treasured possession. The Lord calls us from our sin and misery. Let not this day depart from you, another day where the grace of God is extended to you, and you wake up tomorrow in darkness once more, forgoing the free gift of the gospel that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, our good shepherd, our blessed hope. And with that, let us go in prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord our God, how merciful are you? How just are you? Our steadfast love, our only hope, our true treasure, our shield who withstands the blows from our enemy, our safeguard, Lord, we worship and honor you for all that you have done. Lord, convict us of our idolatry, of our sin toward you. Yet, Lord, renew our minds in repentance to seek Christ and all that he has done for us on our behalf, that, Lord, you are a good God, that you call a people, a wretched people, yet you call them nonetheless to be your people, to be your beloved, to be your treasure. And what amazing grace this truly is that we can know you and understand you. You're not some far off God in a distant world, but you are a living and active God speaking through your son, through your scriptures, by the power of your spirit. For this, Lord, we honor, praise, and glorify your name here and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>